terrific. Morning, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. Uh, my name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, if you are a Facebook user, uh, almost certainly you have had this experience where you have been scrolling through your social media feed and you scroll past, uh, or maybe you slow down as it, as, it scroll, as it's in your feed, like a really bland, generic Christian meme. Uh, like it'll, it'll be from some page that's called like God is good or Jesus is Lord or again, some like true but very, very bland statement. And then it'll be like a, uh, you know, a field of flowers and it'll have a Bible verse on it, right? Like totally, totally harmless, just like a, a nice thing, uh, but like no commentary around it, not like a big post with it, literally just, just like, a, like a bland meme, right? And, and it, it's, it's harmless, it, it's sort of like feed filler, right? And you, you might like it, you might scroll on past it, maybe like an aunt or someone shared it, or like a, you know, Christian coworker from like three jobs ago or something. And again, you probably, like, again, if you're like me, you probably just sort of like barely even register that it's in your feed as you're scrolling past. So it was a big surprise, at least to me, I think to a lot of us, back in 2020, when a leaked internal memo from Facebook revealed that 19 of the 20 top Christian pages, like Christian Facebook pages, all of which were like these meme factories, actually were run by troll farms in Eastern Europe. The only one that wasn't was Guidepost Magazine. That, that was the one, I don't know if you know Guidepost, but yeah, that, that was the one real one. All of the other ones, 19, the other 19 of 20 were, uh, were run by troll farms. And the whole point of them was to get Christians to like the pages and then very subtly influence their politics and behavior um, uh, over, uh, again, over months and months and months. And, you know, Facebook, uh, this internal memo from Facebook expressed dismay and expressed some concern that the Facebook algorithm, the, the programming that decided what things show up in the feed as you're scrolling your Facebook, was actually be, being a really negative influence on America, particularly leading up to the 2020 election. The next year, in 2021, there was another hugely concerning report that was released uh, that Cambridge Analytic, which was a British political consulting company, was found to have been purchasing user data from Facebook. And again, we found out that Facebook had made a habit of selling Facebook users' political uh, information, thing, you know, what we like, what our behaviors are, which direction our politics lean, without our consent to all kinds of uh, political uh, consulting companies, uh, basically, you know, anyone who wanted it. So again, there was this huge thing. Facebook settled, I think, just earlier this year for $725 million, uh, which still, to me, seems like a, a small price to pay for threatening democracy and, you know, our country as we know it. Uh, and so Facebook has rightly uh, been facing a number of questions about how they conduct business, what user security and privacy are even entitled to, and things like that. For me, I think these two stories kind of back-to-back -back raise an even more existential question for me, which is that when we consider our social media, and again, it's not just Facebook, right, but it could be uh, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, 
you know, X or Twitter or whatever, thread, like any social media, uh, they all, all of the social media have to come up with an algorithm that decides what's going to show up in our feeds. Because that's the reason we use social media, right? Is to keep abreast of what other people are, are doing. They all make this choice and they all have different algorithms and the algorithms determine what's on our screens, what goes into our eyeballs. And of course, these social media companies don't advertise what those algorithms are for a couple of reasons. One, because it's proprietary, right? They, they want to have the best one and they want to have a unique user experience that sets them apart from all the other ones, sure. But I think also because these algorithms are not generally created with what's best for us in mind. They're typically generated with what's best for the company in mind. And again, that can change depending on who the company is and what they think is best. But ultimately, it's about, it's about making sure that we serve the good of their company, that we're good for their bottom line, not, not, not generally what's good for us or what's going to lead to our flourishing. If those two things align, that's a happy coincidence. But if they don't, the company's going to prioritize its own bottom line over our health and well-being and flourishing. And again, I think we've seen that over the last several years as uh, more and more of these companies' uh, ill effects have come to the fore and as they've become so influential in our culture as a whole. So today, we're going to try something that I think is going to stretch us all a little bit, but we're going to try to talk about the algorithms that shape what comes onto our screens. And that goes, again, from anything from Facebook and Twitter, and, or X, excuse me, and whatever, to YouTube, uh, to all across. Any social media we use, they all have algorithms uh, that determine that. I don't want to ask, who is in charge of what we're seeing? Who is in charge of what's coming across our screens? Because the reality is, if we are using these things mindlessly, we are not in charge of that. And we're being shaped uh, to benefit someone's story. Uh, and, and what I hope we'll see by the end of the day is that we, we don't have to be mindless about that. We can actually, uh, to a, a pretty good degree, take control of our algorithms and decide uh, what kind of people we want to be. Do we want to be a people shaped by the social media algorithms and what's good for their companies? Or do we want to be a people who's shaped by, uh, by the story of God and by who Jesus is and what Jesus calls us to be in the world? And so uh, that's what, I, again, I think it's going to stretch us a little bit today because we're not mostly used to thinking in these terms, uh, but I'm excited. I think, I think we're going to see some really cool stuff in the scriptures, and I think hopefully it will, it will hit us right where we live, uh, particularly in the virtual world. So we're going to begin by singing together this morning. I think songs are one of the best ways for us to remind ourselves of the story of God. And so uh, we're going to begin by allowing ourselves to be shaped by who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us and the kind of life that he calls us to live. So if you would stand with me, I'm going to hand it over to Nathan and Cynthia as we begin worshiping today. I think it was about seven or eight years ago, we did a series here at Catalyst called Social, where we investigated social media and technology and, and looked at its effects on us. That was uh, quite a few years ago, and a number of things have changed. That was before Twitter became X. That was before uh, TikTok was even a thing. It was before Facebook had all of the shenanigans we talked about earlier. So I thought it would be fun to revisit uh, social, this social series in the age of the, sort of the new incarnations of social media and with how much social media is changing, even it feels like almost in real time. So this, this series that we're in now, we began last week by looking really broadly at technology in general, because there's this impulse that I think particularly religious folks have to demonize the, the new big thing. Whatever the next big thing is, it's, it's the devil. 
And we saw that that's the wrong way to look at technology, that asking whether technology is good or bad is kind of the wrong question because technology is inescapable and it's all around us. And so rather than ask, is this good or bad, ask the question, uh, frame it in terms of Jesus's great commandment, right? How does this technology help me to love God better, to love my neighbor better, to love myself better? Or how does it hinder those things, right? And use that as more of our metric to evaluate. So this week, we're going to talk about algorithms. We're going to talk about those invisible programs that decide what comes on to our screens. And again, I think it's easy to demonize social media, particularly in the wake wake of how polarized everything got in 2016 and all the way through 2020 and into today. And it's easy to lay a lot of that at the feet of social media to say, see, if we just all were not on social media, things would be better. And I don't know, one, that's just never going to happen. So I don't know how productive it is to even say something like that. But two, I'm not actually sure that that's true because I don't know about you, but I've met some of, some of the people in my life who are like my very best friends ever, I met through social media platforms. Like, again, that's why I miss Twitter so much, right? Back in the day when Twitter was better, uh, you know, that it, was, it was a place to, where I formed a lot of real and meaningful relationships. Uh, Facebook has made it easy for years to keep up with family who live far away, and it's easier to see what's going on in their lives, to see kind of like that snapshot into their day-to-day goings-on, and, and keep connected with people that otherwise we would have lost touch with, right? Um, uh, YouTube enables us to have a, a hybrid congregation and worship together, and that's such a beautiful thing in an age where, where people feel like technology separates us more and more and more, that we as a church have found some meaningful ways to come together utilizing social technologies. Even something like with the hurricanes that have been hitting, it makes it, social medias have made it so much easier for us to get funds to people that are directly impacted by events that are far from us than ever before. So, I mean, there's, there is a ton of good that comes from social media. And I think the, the part about it that is so interesting is that it's all free, right? You don't have to pay for a Facebook account. You don't have to pay for a Twitter account. You don't have to pay for Instagram or YouTube. or I mean, you deal with ads, right? Uh, but, but, but these things are all free. Now, a few months ago, uh, the podcast that I co-host, the Fascinating Podcast, we interviewed an author named Jason Pargin, who writes a bunch of like sci-fi and horror kind of stuff. I, it, it really resonates with my peculiar tastes. Not a lot of people, maybe. But one of the things I love about Jason is he's, he's really, really, really smart. And he's one of those guys who just has a really different way of looking at the world. He used to be the managing editor, editor of Cracked.com, which is a, you know, a humor website. But his articles, I always found, in addition to being funny, were deeply insightful about the world. And some, some of his articles that he wrote for a humor website are ones that still shape how I think about ministry and life and things like that. So uh, when we had the chance to talk to him, he said he really wanted to come on and talk about social media. So we had this great conversation with Jason about uh, the state of social media and where it was going and all this kind of stuff. And he brought up this fact that social media is free. And he said, he said this quote that has lingered with me, and I wanted to share it with you. He said, uh, when the product is free, you are the product. When the product is free, you are the product. And that's certainly been true of social media, as Facebook and Twitter and uh, all, you know, social media after social media has, has tried to figure out a way to make money off of this thing they give away for free. They essentially have two options. The first is that they can try to convince you to pay for what you're already getting for free. 
right? This is what Elon Musk is trying to do with X. Uh, he's trying to, you know, he took away the, the blue check verification from accounts that were, uh, it, you know, influential, and he now made it something that you have to pay to get, right? So if you want to be a verified account, it's no longer about being a trustworthy source of news or influence. It's now about whether or not you want to pay the whatever, seven or $8 a month it is to be a Twitter X subscriber, or X blue, I don't know, again, I don't know what they call it, right? So they can try to convince you to pay for what you're getting for free. And that doesn't work great, as we've seen from Twitter X. The other option is to sell ads, right? Uh, this is what most of them do. In our, in our, in our uh, feeds now, we see in about every third or fourth post is a, is a sponsored post, right? Whether that's on Instagram or Facebook or, again, on YouTube. If you, if you use YouTube for free, you've got to watch an ad before you can go to your video, right? That's the other way that they make money is by keeping, uh, by selling ads. And so the tricky thing about social media selling ads is that they can only sell ads if they can guarantee eyeballs on the screen, right? So the algorithms that they write are designed to keep us looking at the screen for as long as possible, right? They want us to stay in the app. They want us to stay on the feed. They want us to keep watching the, the next video to watch one more ad because that's how they make money. If we just kind of pop on, see what our friend's kids are doing and pop off or uh, get on real quick to post a picture of our delicious brunch we just had and pop off, well, they don't make any money from that. Right? So everything that they do, from the user interface to uh, what the app like, looks like on your home screen to, again, the, the experience of using the app itself, all of it is designed to keep you in the app and keep the app open and keep your eyes on the screen as long as possible. Because when the product is free, you are the product. Right? And what they're selling is your attention. Okay? Now, Believe it or not, social media is not the first media to do this. Uh, it's far from the first. Uh, we have been, as, as humans, competing for attention and competing for what today we call brand loyalty for as long as we've you know, been around. And so even though there was no such thing as social media in the scriptures, we can see some of these same patterns. And the Bible actually has some pretty strong opinions on what it's like for us to live in a world where people are constantly competing, not just for our attention, but our affections and our loyalties. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Uh, again, I mentioned last week, I did not intend for this to be like a Revelation sermon series. I certainly don't think technology is the end of the world or anything like that. But, uh, but again, Revelation as a book deals with a lot of these big questions because the book is written to a group of churches that live in modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was the Roman province of Asia. And they are churches that are, are struggling with what it looks like to be faithful in a world that is against them. Uh, they, they live in the shadow of the Roman Empire. They are a conquered, colonized people. And, you know, if, if you, I should have had a map for you, right? But if you think about it, right, uh, Turkey's on, on the, the coast of the Mediterranean, and just across the sea is the boot of Italy where Rome is. And so, you know, right across, right across the Mediterranean Sea is, is the big bad center of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire's whole goal was to make everyone who lived under their authority loyal to Rome, right? Peace is good for business, 
Uh, conflict, revolution, sedition, these things are bad for business. And so Rome's whole goal was to convince people that they were better off living as subjects of the Roman Empire than they were free. And they had a massive propaganda army that was all about this and included everything from crucifixions, which we've talked about before, right, to uh, things like graffiti, uh, in fact, when, when, when archaeologists began excavating Pompeii, which is the town in Italy that got covered by lava, one of the things they were shocked by was how much graffiti there is in a Roman city. Because all of the other, you know, Roman ruins we excavated had been, you know, buried by dirt slowly over time, and so all of the graffiti had gotten worn away. Pompeii, because it got covered by lava and preserved, had tons and tons and tons of graffiti, and archaeologists were flabbergasted by how much graffiti there was ever. In fact, you can go just, if you YouTube uh, do it, or sorry, do a Google image search of Pompeii graffiti, you can see a bunch of it. It's just people just wrote all over their walls. It'd be sort of like today, uh, if you were walking down, you know, a sidewalk uh, down past a bunch of houses and they all had billboards on them, right? And every single one was like advertising something different. That's kind of what the feeling of going through Pompeii was like. All of that is to say that these Christians who are living in the Roman Empire, the Christians to whom Revelation is addressed, are really struggling with what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus in a world that wants them to be faithful to Rome. Okay? They were constantly assaulted by messaging, by images that were telling them how to behave. Right? And uh, if you want a fun little thing, right? not on their Facebook walls, but on literal, on the walls that they were walking past. Right? So you gotta, there's a little connection for you. In this particular chapter, in chapter 13, we're, at the, we're, we're in the last big vision cycle of the book. And uh, John does this really kind of fun, cool thing where he creates, he, he talks about the Trinity and then sort of like the anti-Trinity. So you have, the, you have God, the Father, you have Jesus, who's represented as the Lamb who was slain, like in the song we just sang, right? The worthiest Lamb who was slain. So you've got God, the Father, who's the one who sits on the throne. You've got Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. And then you've got the Holy Spirit in the church as kind of this one entity who, again, they're the ones that are responsible for telling the world about the Lamb. On the other side of it, you have, in, in contrast to God as the one who sits on the throne, you have the devil represented as a dragon. Okay, so you've got God the one who sits on the throne versus the dragon. Then you have, instead of the lamb who was slain, you have Rome, who's represented as this beast that arises out of the sea, which again, think about where Asia Minor is, right? When, when Rome came conquering, they came up out of the sea, right? And it's, uh, the beast is like this big seven-headed, like it's just this terrifying kind of a thing. And it's in, in contrast to the lamb. And then in contrast to the, the church, you have this beast that comes up from the land. Okay, so Rome the sea beast, then the land beast. And the, the land beast looks like the lamb. It looks like Jesus, but he speaks like a dragon. So he sounds like Satan, right? Looks like, looks like Jesus, sounds like Satan. And the, the land beast is the one that we're going to focus on today because what this represents is the propaganda wing of the Roman Empire. Okay, the land beast's whole job is to convince everyone in Asia Minor to worship the sea beast. Okay, his job is to convince everyone that their allegiance and their worship belongs to Rome. Okay, so he is set diametrically opposed to the church, remember, whose job it is to invite everyone to worship Jesus, the lamb who was slain. The land beast is convincing everyone to worship Rome. And so we're going to read in, in Romans 13, we're just going to read a couple of verses here, and I think you'll recognize part of it. So if you're a heavy metal fan, get your horns ready, right? Because we're going to talk about the mark of the beast. So here we go. Let's begin in Revelation uh, 16. 
says he, or sorry, 13, yeah. Uh, he, the land beast, is the he here, right? The land beast required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, so it didn't matter who you were, everyone had to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Now, wisdom is needed here, so let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. There it is, right? There's the, okay. A lot, of, a lot going on here. As when I, I grew up in a, like a Southern Baptist evangelical church, and so we were told our whole lives that it was going to be a barcode that you had to get tattooed on your hand or on your forehead. And then as technology changed, it was going to be a microchip. And then when COVID happened, a bunch of people messaged me, and they're like, is the vaccine the mark of the beast? And I was like, no, don't worry, it's not. You're fine, right? Uh, it's none of those things. What is important to note, though, is that it goes on the hand or on the forehead, right? Now, now this symbolism is actually pretty much exactly what you think it is, right? It's about what you think and what you do. That's why it's the hand or the forehead, right? What you think and what you do, how you behave and how you believe. That's what the land beast is interested in controlling. And again, he says, what goes on your hand or on your head is either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, Again, 666, one of the fun things about 666, and I, I mean, I'm using fun sort of loosely here, it depends, your mileage may vary, is like everyone in history's name can be made to make 666 if you just do the math for long enough. Uh, again, growing up, people, like I was watching Bible people who were predicting the end of time, and they, like, they proved it was Bill Clinton, they proved it was Bill Gates, they proved it was Russia, they proved it was the Pope, they pro- like literally, basically, you can make it make anyone's name. Uh, and, and, and sometimes the math was a little more dubious than others, right? But what we know about ancient peoples is they loved to do this exact kind of a thing, come up with a number for people's names. In fact, in Pompeii, remember the graffiti that I was telling you about? They found one piece of graffiti that says, I love her whose number, the, who, whose, uh, the number of her name is 542. So you can imagine all of the, the high school girls in Pompeii being like, and like trying to add up the name, you know, the numbers of the name and see like which woman's name is this and then trying to figure out who left the graffiti, right? So they, and they would do it exactly the way you think they would do it. A is one, B is two, C is three, D is four. And then you just add up the, the letters of your name. That was, it was a, uh, not, not like a big crazy secret code, right? So the fact that we know that 666 is someone's name, uh, you know, and John said it takes a little bit of wisdom. I will tell you this, the best the, thing, the, the argument that I find most compelling is that uh, if you transliterate Nero's name, Nero Caesar, into Hebrew, it adds up to 666, okay? And Nero was dead by this time, but he was like the worst, worst Roman emperor. He's the one that executed Paul and Peter. Uh, he hated Christians. He's the one that burned Rome and played the fiddle while Rome burned. Like, all that, like he, was, he was the worst, worst, right? And so if you're going to choose an emperor to represent like the worst, scariest, biggest, baddest emperor of Rome, Nero's probably it. And to me, that's the most compelling. But it's actually a little bit besides the point when you're talking about the mark of the beast. Because what matters here the most in this text is that the land beast is going to convince everyone that if they want to buy or sell, then they have to think the way the sea beast, Rome, wants them to think, and they have to act the way the sea beast, Rome, wants them to act. 
And that was actually true for these Christians. Uh, One of the big reasons that they were suffering so much is because if they were faithful to Jesus, if they rejected the Roman gods, then they faced real economic and social consequences. Uh, If you were a shipwright and you went to the shipwrights guild, uh, they opened their shipwright guild meetings with a sacrifice to probably, you know, Neptune or whichever Roman sea god uh, that was there. And if you as a Christian said, you know what, I can't participate in this because uh, I follow Jesus, then you were kicked out of the guild. And then if you were kicked out of the guild, then you were not given any jobs. So you couldn't feed your family. So really and truly, a choice to not think the way Rome wanted you to think and not behave the way Rome wanted you to behave would cost you, literally. It wasn't just social pressure. It wasn't just you would like feel weird when you walked into a room. Like you may not be able to feed your family. This was the power that Rome exerted through their propaganda wing. They made, it, they made it very, very difficult to resist socially, economically, politically, doing things the way Rome wanted you to do them and seeing the world the way Rome wanted you to see them. And yet John says all of this is a plot and a machination by the devil to attack the people of God, to cause them to lose faith in who God is and to cause them to not behave the way Jesus behaves and see the world the way Jesus uh, sees the world. Now, I can imagine that it feels like it's a long distance from the shipwright guilds in ancient Asia Minor to our social media walls. But I genuinely don't think it is. Because the reality is Christians in the ancient world faced tremendous pressure from outside forces to see the world in a way that is anti-Jesus. These forces did not care particularly for their flourishing, what was good for them, what was good for their families, or what was good for their communities. What it cared about was what made profit and what extended influence and power for the people in the seat of power in Rome. And when I look at our social media algorithms, I see something very similar happening here. They often, as we have seen borne out, do not make decisions about what goes into our feeds based on what's good for us or good for our communities or good for our country. They make it based on what's going to keep our eyeballs on the screen for longer, no matter the consequences, because it's good for their bottom lines. Revelation 13 warns us that we don't want to be found bearing the mark of Rome, the mark of the beast. And I wonder for us, how often we think about whose mark we bear, about whose perspective is shaping our behaviors, about whose perspective is shaping our beliefs. And if we are mindlessly using our social medias, as much as statistics say most of us are, uh, often what's happening is we are being influenced in incredibly insidious ways, ways that are not good for us, not good for our spirits, not good for our communities. And so I want to pause here Because again, I think we've taken in some big ideas. And I want to return to singing together. Because again, I think songs are some of the best ways we have to celebrate God's story. And I want us to consider as we sing this song, whose mark are we bearing when it comes to what we believe and and how we behave? Uh, Are we bearing the mark of Jesus or are we bearing the mark of, you know, someone else? So I'm going to hand it back over to Nathan and Cynthia and invite you all to stand with me again. What does it look like to resist uh, the mark? Because uh, honestly, even even Revelation is relatively 
uh, squishy about what exactly it looks like for these seven churches and these seven different cities who are already experiencing seven different sort of versions of the same problem. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of hard and fast uh, instruction here. And I think that's actually wise. I think it's, it's dangerous to, to prescribe something for once and for all time, uh, not only for those seven cities in the end of the first century, but then, you know, as that applies for us today. So what I do want to do is look at a passage in Philippians chapter 4, so you can turn over there with us, uh, because this is, again, towards the end of one of Paul's letters, and he does what he often does here, which is provide a bunch of really practical advice. And Paul uh, planted churches all over the Roman Empire in cities that were facing a lot of the same kinds of conflict that we see in the book of Revelation. And so they were constantly asking, what does it look like for those of us who have, you know, come out of Roman rule and are trying our best to live under the rule of Jesus, to bear the mark of Jesus instead of the mark of Caesar? And, uh, and so Paul often gives them a lot of really clear, practical instructions that, uh, that have ended up being really timeless for us. And as I was reading this passage, uh, I just kept thinking about uh, the way that social media algorithms tend to form us. Because again, what, what they found over and over and over is that, you know, cute cat videos do an okay job of holding our attention. But if you really want to keep someone on your platform, what you need to do is create some drama. People love drama and love it when things get messy. And so, uh, again, for instance, I think Twitter is a great example of this. The, the Twitter algorithm uh, prioritized bringing stuff in front of your eyeballs that is different from what's mostly uh, the, the stuff that you follow. Uh, they wanted to make sure that you were being presented things that would trigger some outrage and manufacture some outrage because that would keep you on the platform longer. You would, you know, quote tweet it or reply or share it with your people and then the people who follow you would get outraged and, and it would just create, it would create a whole bunch of eyeballs on the Twitter app, which was good for their ads and terrible for our character. Again, we saw Facebook doing much the same kind of thing and leaving us vulnerable to people who wanted to exploit us in those ways. And so in light of that, in light of the fact that I think a lot of our social media, if we use it mindlessly, shapes us to, um, to be outraged or to distrust other people or to look for a fight instead of working to make some peace, uh, I thought Paul's words here in Philippians 4 would be very good for us. So I, I want to read them with you. I kind of just want to take it slowly through them, and, and we're just going to kind of meditate on them a little bit. So uh, beginning in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 4, here's what Paul says. Therefore, my dear siblings, stay true to the Lord. I love you, and I long to see you, my dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now, I appeal to Eudora and Syndike. Okay, these are two women. We don't know anything about them, except that they weren't getting along because Paul says, please, keep in mind, right? This letter is like, hey, we got a letter from Paul. We're reading it in church on Sunday, right? So everyone, including these two, are just sitting in the congregation. And Paul says, hey, you two. And they're like probably sitting, you know, there and there, right? Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked alongside with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Now, before we go on with the instructions, I, I just, I think it's really beautiful that we have the smallest little snapshot of a window into whatever drama was going on here, 
right? We don't know exactly what caused that. We, we have no idea what caused the fight between these two women. We know that it was apparently significant enough that report of it got back to Paul, probably in a letter that the, the Philippians had sent to him. But when Paul talks to them, he reminds them of their shared history together, and he commends them for who they are when they're at their best selves. And I, again, I just can't help but in an age of social media division and distortion, thinking that this is such good advice for us as well, that when we engage with each other, we try to think about each other as, as the versions of our best selves, and we remember the things that unite us. And then we don't ignore the differences, right? But we take Paul's advice to work hard to heal them. I think that I think that's it's difficult work, but I think it's a beautiful picture of what can be when we don't allow the algorithms to decide that drama is going to rule the day. He goes on, always be full of joy in the Lord. And I say it again, rejoice. That's the cat videos, right? Let the cute animal videos flow in my feed, give me all that joy, right? I, I just look for excuses to celebrate. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do remember that the Lord is coming soon, so don't worry about anything, right? Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he has done. And then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. That's that, that's that mark of God that's on our heads, right? Instead of the mark of Caesar. Now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are worthy, or that are excellent and worthy of praise. I think if we allow Paul's instructions to the Philippians to guide our social media usage, we can take control back from the algorithms. Obviously, one solution to this is just to delete all of your social media accounts. And I know, I know people who have done that, um, and there's actually a long tradition in, uh, the, in church history of sort of rejecting things that poison us, uh, the monastic tradition, the Amish tradition, right? This is the long history of Christians who just say, you know what, um, I'm just going to not participate in it at all. And that's fine. There are people who are called to do that. That may be something God is calling you to in the context of today's worship. And, and if know that that's, that's a thing that happens, that's a thing Christians do, uh, and it, it's, it's praiseworthy and it's beautiful when people do that. It's not the only solution. I just wanted to share, as I was thinking about this, some, some things that I have tried to do, uh, and these are, not, these are not things I'm going to scribble in your Bible margins or something like that. They're just practical things that I've gathered throughout the years from people uh, who, who have given some good tips on how to, again, kind of keep social media as a tool rather than something that shapes our worldviews. So I have four little things, and then again, I'm sure the rest of you have some things too, so if you want to throw those in the live chat or share them afterwards, uh, I, I think that would be great. Um, one of them is uh, to use app timers. This is something that a lot of smartphones have begin, begun offering where you can actually just set a timer that says, you know, you can use this app for 10 minutes for the day or an hour for the day or whatever. And then once you've been on that app for that amount of time, it just grays out. And if you try to open it, your phone's like, mm, you told me not to let you do this. Are you sure? And then you have to click, yes, I'm going to make a bad decision. Let me do it, right? Um, so app timers can be a great way just to, again, put some guardrails up and say, you know what? I don't want to just mindlessly open an app, so I'm going to be on it, and then, you know, it'll close it off. That's one thing. Another one is just taking, taking the apps off your home screen because, again, even the app 
icons and stuff are designed to get you to want to click on them. It's like real subtle psychological stuff. And so if you just take them off your home screen and make it so you have to go in and open, like open your app window and search for it, it's just a couple of extra steps that keeps you from mindlessly opening them. Um, another one is curating your feed. I don't know about y'all, but the unfollow button has become like a beautiful thing. When you see stuff that every time you see that account or that meme or whatever, it causes certain toxic reactions in you, just unfollow it, right? Just get rid of it out of your feed. Just take it away. Um, you don't have to follow every single thing that's out there. Um, and one of the beautiful things about Facebook is if you care about a person but can't stand who they are on social media, you can just unfollow them. You're still friends with them and they don't even know you unfollowed them, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't harm that in-person relationship and it, it protects your own sanity, right? Uh, your, own, your own piece of well-being. Uh, and then the last one, this is, this is one I implemented a few years ago, and I think it's really helpful, is uh, no scrolling in bed. Uh, we actually have a lot of studies that say that the, if you look at a bright screen in bed, like a computer screen, you know, smartphone, laptop, whatever, it actually, it actually hurts your sleep cycles anyway. So it's, it's healthy for you to get better sleep. And again, you just don't need to be on, you know, there's no need to doom scroll in bed. That's, that's just not a thing that we need to do. But it's something a lot of us, because a lot of us use our phones as our alarms and things like that, it's become a habit. Those are four things that I've, I've implemented that have helped me a lot. Again, they may not be for everybody. Uh, some of you may already do those. Some of you may have some better ideas that I'd love to hear. But the point is, these are small, personal choices we can make that shift who's in control of what we see away from the mindless algorithms that are seeking to use us for their good and towards us who can control what's in our feeds, what goes into our eyes, and what's shaping and forming our spirits so that we can take control and uh, focus on bearing the mark of Jesus, uh, not the mark of whatever social media we might be addicted to. Now, I know that, I know this has been kind of a, a waffling between like big idea stuff and then like really practical stuff. And so I want to come to the communion table because, again, I think these kind of Regular rhythms that we have together, receiving communion together uh, as a meal, help us to continue to remember what it means to bear Jesus's mark. And in our exam today, in lieu of questions, I'm going to actually give us uh, the Philippians passage uh, broken up into three sections again. And I want to give you about a minute with each section for you to read slowly through it, to prayerfully consider it, and to ask what what in these verses might God be encouraging me to, uh, uh, to, to adopt for this next week? Is there a particular instruction or behavior uh, or even a way of seeing things that God is challenging me on? So I'm going to read each of them very slowly and then give you, some minutes to re- give you about a minute to reflect on them. And then after that, we'll pray together and we'll receive communion together. So here's the first one I want you to consider. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, Stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now I appeal to Eudora and Syndicate. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are written in the book of life.
always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which extends beyond any, exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. pray together. God, you have gathered us today that we might remember that there are invisible forces that are seeking to shape our allegiance and our behavior. And that's always been true. That's been, that's been a reality that your people have faced since the days of Egypt. And yet you have always sought to liberate us from those forces and to call us into a world where we can love you and serve you and see the world the way you see the world. We confess that we often mindlessly consume things through our social medias uh, without giving thought to who decided that those were the things we should consume. We confess that too often we find we uh, accidentally and without thinking bear the marks of those organizations or those companies rather than the mark of your son, Jesus. And so we confess that and we approach your table today and we uh, we ask that as we receive these elements, that they would be a spiritual food for us, that we might be conscious yet again of the forces that seek to shape us to be other than your people, and that we would cling tightly to you, that we would bear your mark in the world, whether that is in the, uh, the physical world or the virtual world, that in every interaction we have, people might know that we belong to you and that they are loved infinitely. We offer these prayers now when we approach your table in the name of your son, Jesus. The night Jesus was betrayed, this was the meal that he shared with his disciples. It was during that meal he broke bread and gave it to us and said, this is my body broken for you, take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, take it and drink it. So now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we remember Jesus's death until he returns. Uh, and now as you're going... Uh, I think this is such a great excuse for me to assign you a little bit of introspection about your feeds. Uh, you know, which social media do you find yourself using the most? And what do you know about its algorithms? 
what can you learn about that this week? What do you notice when you sort of look critically at your feed about what you're being shown? Uh, what, what does that say about how you're being shaped? Uh, I think if we, if we learn to ask these questions on a regular basis, it's how we can use social media responsibly. And rather than letting it shape us, we can uh, have it as a, as a tool that's a part of our, our formation uh, to bear the mark of Jesus. Because, again, that's what, uh, that's what we're called to. We're always called to live mindfully in, our, in a world that uh, does not want us to bear the mark of Jesus in how we believe or how we behave. And so it's up to us as God's people to prioritize that and to let the Holy Spirit shape us uh, to be God's people and to bear the mark of the Lamb who was slain. Now, if you'll stand, I want to dismiss you with a, a blessing. Next week, we're talking about cancel culture. Uh, so that'll be a good time. Can't wait for that. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for, uh, you know, the nice, nice low-key, not, not controversial at all, right? Uh, very, very chill kind of a thing. So looking forward to that next week. But for now, Catalyst, as you go, uh, would you go knowing that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living and active within you and around you, uh, giving you the grace that we all need to bear Jesus's mark faithfully in our world? Would you go with his mark on your head and on your hands, knowing that he's shaping how you behave and believe so that you can be a source of love to everyone you encounter this week? Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next week.